Praise the Lord. What an awesome day today. Everyone's here on time. Awesome. That's a good start. <laughs> Amen. God has some awesome things in store for us today. Uh, not because I'm up here, but because God is here. Amen. The servant is, in a lot of ways, irrelevant. What matters is that God is present here and that he has a desire to do something in our service here this morning. Amen. And it's up to us to receive that. It's up to us to, to uh, create an atmosphere whereby somebody else might receive that. Praise God. Let's all stand. <coughs> Kingdom business needs to be accomplished. Amen. The kingdom needs to be moving forward, and that's exactly our purpose here this morning. Lord Jesus, you're an awesome God. You're a mighty king. We heap glory and honor unto you. Thank you, Jesus, that your presence is already here. We're not asking you to be here, Lord. You're already here, and in such a powerful way, such a close way, such a personal way. Hallelujah, Jesus. We do laud and magnify your name. We desire this morning to submit ourselves to your authority in all things. To submit ourselves to the authority of the word of God. Hallelujah. Myself included. Thank you, Jesus, that you have delivered unto us fundamental truth. I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Hallelujah, Jesus. Speak to us through your word. Speak to us, Lord, through the preaching of the word. Help us to receive all that you have for us today. Hallelujah, Jesus. And I pray that your mighty name, your wondrous name, your glorious name would be glorified in our midst here this morning. Let your name be lifted up and magnified here today. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Praise God. God bless you. Thank you for standing. You can be seated. Our Wednesday services, we've started a, a series on doctrine, and we're, we're talking about different things. One of the things that I had originally planned on talking about on Wednesday was the doctrine of God. But as I started looking at it, of course, I should have known this at the start, uh, the topic of God is a little bit larger than one service can probably cover effectively. And so I wanted to set up a separate series, and that's what we're going to do here on Sunday uh, mornings, is talk about the doctrine of God. And we're going to do a deep dive into it. God has revealed a lot of himself through scripture, through general revelation, nature, his creation. And we want to talk about that, and we want to seek to understand not only what he has revealed to us, but why, and, and how we can apply that to our relationship with him. Amen. Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And we find also in John 1.1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So we see right off the bat, from the very first verse, this mention of God. The existence of God is never explained, it's never uh, there's no apologetic we can find in Scripture that would give us a good argument for the existence of God. His existence is merely assumed. It's just presented that He is and that He created everything. And it just moves on from there. It's never explained why He exists, how He exists, just that He does. And that is... If our human reason wasn't corrupted by sin, that would be enough. That would be, that would be more than sufficient for us that God exists. And we would take it at face value and move on from there. The problem, though, is human reason has been corrupted by sin. And we're going to find throughout this study that human reason by itself certainly is no longer sufficient for us to discover who God is. 
Any study of God is generally referred to as theology. Okay, theology comes from two Greek words, theos, meaning God or deity, and logos, which actually has a lot of different meanings, but in this context means knowledge. The knowledge of God or the knowledge of deity. Theology is typically divided up into three areas. Natural theology, biblical theology, and systematic theology. If you've done any studying, uh, if you've looked at more formal writings, certainly from the past, uh, if you've grown up Catholic, you would know the name Thomas Aquinas probably. Uh, he wrote a work called Summa Theologica, and that was, uh, that was a, an apologetic, but it was, a, it was a treatise on systematic theology. In any case, uh, we'll go into to all of that in detail. Natural theology is a type of theology that seeks to provide arguments for the existence of God based on reason and ordinary experience of nature and the universe. Okay, we'll talk more about each of these as we go along. Biblical theology, a type of theology that seeks to understand God as He has revealed Himself to us through His Word. Okay, so right here we have natural theology. Uh, we typically call that general revelation. Biblical theology, we typically call that special revelation. And then systematic theology is a type of theology that seeks to arrange religious truths into a self-consistent whole. Okay, natural theology. Psalm 8, verses 3 and 4 says, When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, what is man that thou art mindful of him, and the son of man that thou visitest him? Okay, so right here we understand that we are to consider God's creation. This is something that we should be doing. It doesn't say, if I consider your heavens. It says, when. When I consider your heavens. And it's hard not to sometimes. If you, if, you've, if you do or if you ever have lived out in the country, away from the city lights, and you get a nice clear night, the stars are so bright. It's beautiful. And you can see them so clearly. And it's hard not to just sit there in a field or uh, in your yard and just stare at it. It's hard not to do that because it's so amazing to consider that all of those stars we're seeing is a small fraction of this one galaxy. And there are hundreds of billions of other galaxies out there that we can see. A lot more that we can't. All containing hundreds of billions of stars. When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars which thou hast ordained, who are we? So one, we need to consider his creation. Because from his creation we can discover some things. Psalm 19 and 1 says that one of the purposes of this universe is to, to declare the glory of God. His creation declares His glory. It declares His characteristics. When we do consider His creation, we should draw two conclusions. We should. We should have a proper understanding of the Creator that's demonstrated in His creation. An understanding of the characteristics of this Creator. Again, we see the universe is very large. This must be a large Creator. We see that there's a lot of energy out there. How many stars are there? Quadrillions of stars. I mean, it start, the numbers start to get ridiculous. We, we can't really grasp that, those kinds of numbers. But each one of them are powered by nuclear fusion. Our nuclear power plants, which are an in in a amazing and enormous source of energy for us today, are powered by fission, a far inferior process. Fusion is much superior, and every one of those stars are fueled by it. There's a lot of energy out there. So this creator must have a lot of power. We look at the, the natural laws, the order of creation. 
and we realize that this creator must be a, a very intelligent being. And we can discover a few more things about God from our creation. So we should understand some things about this creator by observing this, this creation. The other thing that we should come to is a conclusion of our proper position in relation to the creator. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Compared to someone that can create all of this. I have trouble drawing anything other than a stick figure. I have one guy that I draw that's not a stick figure. I call him Muton. <clears throat> I used to use it for lessons when I was helping with homeschool. Muton says, study your scriptures or else. He was this big, buff, superhero guy. <laughs> but even as sophisticated and as awesome as that guy is, I can't come close to creating an actual human being, let alone a planet for that human being to reside on, and a solar system for the planet to reside in, and a galaxy for the solar system in it. You get the point. There's no way I can do that. I've often thought of creation as a... I'm not recommending you see any of the movies, but who, are, who here has heard of The Matrix? Okay, it's in popular culture now. It's been around for a while. The Matrix is a computer simulation, okay? It's possible, and there's a lot of crazy philosophical discussions on the Internet about this, that we're not actually here. Our bodies are, are in a vat somewhere, and we're plugged into this huge computer simulation, which is this. It's hard to disprove that, but you can't prove it either. <laughs> so, but in any case, I don't believe that, by the way. But uh, I've often thought of creation in terms of a computer simulation, in that what, what kind of thinking, what kind of planning had to go into ordering the universe the way it is? If you start looking at the, the fundamental constants of the universe, the constants of gravity, the, the, how time operates, it all has to mess. There's an enormous amount of complexity, okay, in the most fundamental things. It is enormously, impossibly complex. But it all has to mess together and it all has to interact perfectly. They can't clash in any area because if they do, the simulation, or in this case, creation, falls apart. If I were to program this, there's no computers around that could handle it. You would need an incredible amount of processing power, an enormous amount of memory storage to be able to do that. But all of this just works. It works perfectly. It's worked for thousands of years. I have no reason to doubt that when I wake up tomorrow, should the Lord tarry, it's going to continue working. The Bible even tells us this, that Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. He holds all things together. And so we need to understand these two things from creation. Okay, so why should we contemplate God's creation? Okay, we're going to get this kind of understanding, but is there a real compelling reason why I should? Well, Romans 1, 19 and 20 says this, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And again, in Psalm 19, 1-3, it says, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth His handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. 
Creation is speaking to all cultures in all time periods, revealing to them and to us here today that there is a Creator God and that this God has certain characteristics. All right, the context of Roman 1 indicates that this general revelation of who God is is not enough to lead one to salvation. It can explain some things about who God is. He's powerful, he's intelligent, he's huge. But that's really about all we can learn from creation. It will not lead one to salvation. In fact, because of sin's effect on human reason, it rather leads one to judgment than to salvation. Okay, when we look at creation and we discover and we come to the conclusion that someone created all of this. But who? Ancient cultures all around the world have come to the same conclusion. There's something more powerful out there. There's someone, there's some being or beings that control all of this. A lot of civilizations in times past have come to the conclusion that there are multiple deities. There are many gods. Gods of the ocean. Gods of the hearth. Gods of fertility. Gods of lightning and storms. Gods of this. Gods of that. So human reason lets us know that there's a Creator, but we draw some wrong conclusions after the fact. And if we start thinking about this Creator God like, well, He's kind of like I am, only He's just more powerful. He's kind of like I am, only He's more intelligent. We end up with like the Greek gods who are ruled by the same emotions and the same passions and the same fallibility as human beings are. They're just more powerful. And that would be, we would err in doing that. God is not like that at all. When we think of God as just a more intelligent being, I mean that, that doesn't begin to do it justice. He has many orders, many magnitudes of order higher than us. We could think of, well, you know, you got smart amoebas and dumb amoebas. <clears throat> the smart amoebas are smarter than the dumb amoebas. But they're all stupid compared to us. Compared to the dumbest human being. I mean, orders of magnitude smarter. Thinking of God as, as just someone who's more powerful or someone who's more intelligent, that doesn't begin to do God justice. He is, he is all by Himself. He is incomparable. He's not simply more, more smart than I am. He could probably talk better too. More smarter. <laughs> yeah. There's an oxymoron. <clears throat> However, I'm trying to think of a good way to explain this. The very first computers. Anyone ever read or studied the ENIAC? ENIAC 1. Yeah, room-sized computer that today uh, is probably less powerful than what's in your coffee maker. <clears throat> the coffee maker is probably many times more powerful than the ENIAC. But if I tried to put one of today's gaming programs and try to get it to run on the ENIAC, assuming I could translate it into a language the ENIAC could understand, there's just not enough memory storage, there's not enough processing power for that archaic computer system to run it. It just, it doesn't have the tools. It doesn't possess the tools to do it. And I guess in a very clumsy way, maybe I could explain it that way. God has so many more tools. We just don't, we just don't possess the equipment to, to properly understand. Or to comprehend. 
Okay, so creation lets us know that there is a deity out there, a creator. Lets us know some of his characteristics, but it cannot let us know anything about him personally. We can discover some of his physical characteristics, but we cannot discover anything about his personal characteristics. Who is he? What's his name? Does he feel emotion? Does he care about us? Is he present? Is he even here yet? So our reliance on natural theology alone must therefore assume that human reason has not been tainted by original sin. People that rely on natural revelation or natural theology alone must believe that human reason has not been tainted, has not been affected by sin. If you go all the way back to ancient Greece, and probably before then, but uh, philosophers in ancient Greece, uh, Greek times sought to discover metaphysical truths by observing creation. They did this as well. They did so, though, under the assumption that human reason was sufficient to discover all truth given enough time, given enough effort. That human reason was sufficient by itself to discover everything that was true about reality. Okay, we see this idea come back into vogue, you know, uh, after the, after the Christian church got established, that kind of went by the wayside. And we see in, in early church history, up until uh, about the early to middle, middle ages, that uh, that was the case. No one would trust human reason. Scripture was supreme. Now, how that was interpreted, of course, was another thing entirely. But they still held to the, the belief that Scripture was supreme. They would just make it fit whatever they wanted it to say. <clears throat> but when Thomas Aquinas came onto the scene, he kind of revived this ancient uh, belief that human reason was sufficient, that human reason had not been corrupted by sin. Thomas Aquinas believed and those of you that are more intimately familiar with his writings, forgive me, I'll probably oversimplify his, his writings and his beliefs here. But in general, what he believed was, and what he, what he wrote and taught was that the fall did happen. Okay, We are sinful creatures. Our bodies and our souls have been corrupted by sin, but our minds remain untouched. That's what Thomas Aquinas believed, that our minds were untouched. So human reason was still good. It was still an effective tool. And because of that, he probably, the reason he believed that was because he wanted to bring the Greek and Roman teachings and the, the, those writings in and just kind of compile everything together. He, re, he was really fascinated. He was really impressed with their writings, their philosophies. So we kind of have an amalgamation here taking place. Thomas Aquinas thought that human reason was sufficient, therefore we could use reason to discover truth from general revelation. This turns out to be false, however. Human reason is not sufficient. And if we looked at scriptures, we would see that. Romans 1.28 says, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. So we see here about reprobate minds in Romans 8, 7, because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Carnal minds are an enmity against God. 1 Timothy 6, 5 says, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Okay, we read about corrupt minds. 2 Corinthians 3, 4. But their minds were blinded. For until this day remaineth the same veil untaken away in the reading of the Old Testament, which veil is done away in Christ. And moving on to 2 Corinthians 4, 4. In whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. So in these two verses we read about minds that are blinded and unable to discover or to see truth. And that's not, just, that's not just spiritual truth either. 
although that's what they're referring to. Because of sin, because of the corruption of sin in our, our, our thought process. Originally, we were created perfect. Originally, we were created to think like God thinks. Logically, cogently, orderly. God is a God of order, not chaos. He's a God of law, not rebellion. And so that's how God thinks naturally. When we fell into sin, our human reason became subject to all kinds of things. Our emotional state, cognitive biases, uh, mental heuristics, shortcuts that we use day to day. Generally, they work out, but they're not 100% by any stretch of the imagination. And so all of these things work against us trying to discover truth. Human reason by itself is not sufficient to discover truth. So then we turn to Scripture. I think that's a good idea. Biblical theology is closely related to systematic theology, but they differ in one area. Okay, Biblical theology, systematic theology are very similar in a lot of ways, but they differ in one main area. One is considered static. The other is considered dynamic. So systematic theology focuses on the final state of the doctrines we profess. Okay? Systematic theology is interested in the finished article. This is what I believe. This is my statement of faith. Okay? That's systematic theology. Biblical theology is more interested in the process by which revelation unfolds and moves toward the goal, which is God's final revelation in Jesus Christ. So systematic theology then is interested in the finished article, the statement of Christian doctrine, biblical theology is concerned with the progressive unfolding of truth. And I guess that's one reason why I like the Search for Truth 2 Bible study so much, is because it, that's how it's presented, as a gradual and uh, consistent revelation of truth, from the fall all the way to the, the fullness of the revelation of the Godhead in Jesus Christ. That process took thousands of years. It took a long time for God to do that. I don't know why it took Him so long. Maybe that's something I'll ask Him when I get up there. But there was a reason for it. And every step of the way, He reveals something more. Every step of the way, we, we discover a new, another truth about who He is. That's biblical theology. Okay, so systematic theology... Using biblical texts, systematic theology attempts to compare and relate all of Scripture, which led to the creation of a systematized statement on what the whole Bible says about a particular topic. Okay, so, in other words, systematic theology is going to look at the doctrine of God, for example. And it's going to pull every Scripture in where the Bible talks about God. And it's going to compile all of that, and from that, we're going to formulate a statement of faith, a doctrine. And that's going to be part of our systematic theology. Uh, the UPCI has articles of faith. Uh, most denominations have something along these lines. And generally, uh, I use that term very broadly, generally, systematic theology is divided into the following categories. Different denominations, different traditions will divide it differently. But generally... You're going to find doctrine of the Holy Scripture or the Bible, doctrine of God, doctrine of the Godhead, doctrine of man, doctrine of sin and the fall, doctrine of salvation, doctrine of the church, and the doctrine of eschatology or end times. <clears throat> Depending. But generally, that's what you're going to find. So hopefully, obviously, uh, when, we're, when we move to biblical theology and systematic theology, we're moving away from general revelation or trying to discover God through nature and creation to a more special revelation, trying to understand who God is from His revelation to us in Scripture. It's from a thorough and systematic study of Scripture that we begin to see the totality of who God is as He has revealed Himself to us. I want to emphasize, as He has revealed Himself to us. Understanding God. Why is it important to know who God is? 
I think that's a fair question, a fair statement. He's very powerful. He created everything. But why should I seek to spend my precious time and energy trying to understand anything about Him? Well, I've come up with a few reasons. Because we are called to be Christ-like. That is God's perfect will after salvation for all people. What does that mean? What does that look like? I don't know what Christ-like is until I know what Christ is. If I am supposed to be like Him, I need to know what He's like. Because we're called to continue Christ's mission here on earth. What mission is that? Why is that the mission? And how did He accomplish the mission? I won't know that unless I start digging into Scripture. Start learning about who God is. Why is His mission to save the lost? I don't care about the lost. Why does He? Well, I'm not going to know until I start looking at Scripture and understanding how He feels about us. How He loves us so desperately. We will ultimately be judged on how well we measure up to His example. He is our our example in all things. He is the standard by which we are going to be judged. What example did He leave for me? And what does it mean to measure up? How am I supposed to do that? Another reason is I'm commanded to trust in God. We'll be talking more about that next, next service. I'm commanded to trust in God. How am I supposed to do that if I don't know who He is? As human beings, we have a hard time trusting people we don't know. Right? I mean, that's fair. I'd like to believe you. I don't know you from Adam. We'll see. We'll see if what you're saying is true. Like Ronald Reagan said, trust but verify. (laughs) He revealed Himself to us for a reason. It's God's perfect will for us to know Him. And this is probably for me, personally, my most compelling reason. If I wasn't supposed to know about Him, He wouldn't have revealed Himself to me. But He did. And He does everything for a reason. Everything He does is for my benefit. So if He's revealed Himself to me, and from what I've read about Him in Scripture, He's an amazing guy. He's an amazing person, entity. He's an awesome God. I want to get to know Him more. I want to know more about Him. So this study is going to be an attempt to bring together everything we know about God with the express intent of getting to know Him better. All right. The knowability of God. Job 11 and 7 says, Canst thou by searching find out God? Canst thou find out the Almighty unto perfection? Romans 11.33 says, Oh, the depth of the riches both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. Isaiah 40 and 18 says, To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto Him? Okay, so as we go through this study, and we're going to seek to understand God and get the fullest picture, the fullest revelation of who God is as He's revealed Himself to us, We've got to understand at the outset that the totality of who God is is utterly incomprehensible to us. Again, we don't possess the equipment to process who God is completely. He's an infinite God. He has infinite knowledge, infinite wisdom, infinite understanding. He has lived 
from everlasting, he will live to everlasting. We don't know what that means. We can't grasp what that, what that, I mean, again, we understand what the word eternity means. We can define it. It means forever. It means always. But we can't understand it. We don't have anything to relate to that. We've had a beginning. We're not going to have an end. But we all have had a beginning. We do not possess infinite wisdom and knowledge. I think it's fair to assume that we don't even possess half of all the knowledge out there. Yeah, not even a speck. But certainly not even half. God possesses all of it. And so we've got to understand when, when we're, we're trying to approach this God, the God that created everything, we've got to understand ultimately in this life, He is the, the completeness, the wholeness of who God is is incomprehensible to us. We cannot understand that. However, God has revealed some things about Himself to us. And it is those things that we seek to understand. It is those things that we will be responsible for. We've got to acknowledge at the outset we're never going to possess a complete picture of who God is this side of glory. Nor are we going to possess a complete understanding of God's plans and designs this side of glory. We've got to understand sometimes God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And we're not always going to understand why He does things, why He says things, why He leads us in the direction He's leading us. But church, we don't have to always understand. I know we want to. I know that. Believe me, I know that. I want to understand. My whole life has, since I've come into the church, has been a desire to understand Scripture and to, to know what it's saying, what it's telling me, how to apply it, how to teach it to others. But there are some things I'm never going to know here. It's just, I don't have enough time. I don't have the equipment to process everything. I'm just not going to understand all of God's plans, all of God's designs. And that's okay. I can trust Him for the rest. But he has revealed some things to us. And in that, those areas, he is knowable. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, God, who at sundry times and, and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory... And the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So we read here that in this progressive revelation of who God is, God has in these last times spoken to us through Jesus Christ, the express image of his person. This is the fullest revelation of God that we have had. The revelation of God in Jesus Christ. John 1 and 18 says, No man hath seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, He hath declared Him. So God makes Himself known to us through the person of Jesus Christ. God has revealed Himself to us through Jesus. John 17 and 3 says, And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Okay, so except we know who God is, we cannot experience salvation. Is it important to know who God is? Absolutely it is. Absolutely it is. We've got to know who God is. That should be the primary focus of our lives is discovering who God is. And then afterward, getting to know Him as intimately as possible. That's got to be our primary focus. 
First John 5 and 20 says, We know that the Son of God has come and hath given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true. And we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Philippians 3.10 says, That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings. Being made conformable unto His death. It is God's expressed design and desire to reveal Himself to us so that we might know Him. So that we might know Him. Ultimately, we will come to know God completely. Ultimately, after this life has passed and we enter into eternity, we will know the totality of God. We will then possess the equipment necessary to process exactly who God is. Praise God. But not today. 1 Corinthians 13 and 12 says, For now we see through a glass darkly. But then, face to face, now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. We're going to know Him and we're going to possess a complete knowledge of who God is. A complete understanding. We will no longer be subject to the foibles and, and, and emotional states and cognitive biases that plague our intellect now. We're not going to be plagued by mortality. We're not going to be plagued by this mortal flesh. We'll have everything we need to know God, to know Him completely, and to have a physical, perfect, face-to-face relationship with our God. All right, the existence of God. Genesis 1:1 we've already read in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. Psalm 14 and 1 says the fool hath said in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. They have done abominable works. There is none that doeth good. Romans 1:19 and 20 through 21 says because that which may be known of God is manifest in them for God hath sowed it unto them. For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because that, when they knew God, and they did know God, they glorified Him not as God. Neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now again, God's not throwing names. He's not name-calling people, calling them fools or foolish. There's a definition here of the word fool. A biblical definition. Those that deny the existence of God is a fool. Again, we find no evidences for the existence of God in Scripture. It's simply stated matter of fact that He does indeed exist and that He created everything. The Bible also declares to us that it's foolishness to not accept the fact of God's existence. And from Scripture, that's really all we get. Unfortunately, not everyone acknowledges Scripture as fundamental truth. Unfortunately, not everyone submits themselves to the authority of God's Word. They're still stuck in a soulless state. They want to reason it out. They want to think it through. Well, fortunately, God is a God of reason. He did say to His people at one point, come, let us reason together. We see in the New Testament, the book of Acts, several times where the apostles reasoned mightily out of the Scriptures. So we're not... We're not anti-reason here. We're not anti-science. We're not anti... uh, Let me say it another way. Faith and reason are not the opposite. Faith and science are not the opposite. If anything, they're two sides of the same coin. Science exists. Science exists because Scripture is true. How do we do science? 
trial and error, we discover the scientific method, right? Form a hypothesis. Test the hypothesis over multiple scenarios. If it holds up, we've got a theory. If not, we've shown something about reality that's false. But what about tomorrow? Is it still false tomorrow? If I've proved it true, is it still true tomorrow? Why is that? Because of the orderliness of creation. If this came strictly from natural processes, I've seen all kinds of strictly natural processes. I was an artilleryman in the army. I saw all kinds of natural processes downrange. Nothing, nothing came from that except chaos, destruction. I never see anything organized or ordered from those explosions. Now granted, I was only in four years. I only have four years worth of data. Maybe if I'd throw rounds down range for a hundred years, maybe something would happen, right? Nope. thousand years? Nope. A million? Nope. You can throw as much time on it as you want. If the chances are zero, I don't care how much time you put on it, it's still zero. Science exists because God created an orderly, systematic universe that's ruled by laws. That's why science works. Anyway. However, there are reasons to believe what we do. There are reasons why we believe this way. Ultimately, we understand that the conclusion to acknowledge the existence of God is ultimately an act of faith. Now, I'm going to define that in a moment. I'm not talking about a blind, unreasoning faith. You can believe in anything you want. But you may or may not have a good reason to believe that. People believe we're in a, in a computer simulation. I'm not convinced they have a good reason to believe that. They still do. Okay, so, when I say that it's an act of faith, I say that it cannot be proven or disproven. That's what I mean by that. The act of faith I'm talking about is I cannot prove the existence of God scientifically, but you can't disprove Him either. You can't prove the Big Bang scientifically. I can give you all kinds of reasons why it couldn't have possibly happened scientifically. But ultimately, I can't disprove it either. It's something that people accept by faith. So, inductive arguments versus deductive. In a nutshell, deductive arguments are true or false. 100% true, 100% false. Okay, there's no gray areas. Inductive arguments, you're dealing with probabilities, chances. A very good inductive argument means there's a highly, highly probable chance that this is going to take place. A weak inductive argument says, well, maybe it'll take place, but maybe not. Okay? You're dealing with probabilities. So, when we're talking about evidences for the existence of God, we're using inductive reasoning, inductive arguments. We can explain that there's a, highly, there's a high likelihood of God existing, rationally, logically, but we can't ever get that to 100%. Why? Because, again, ultimately, it's an act of faith. This faith is neither blind nor unreasonable. Okay? We read in 10, uh, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, that faith is a gift from God. Okay? God gives us a measure of faith. However, this faith from God is supported by numerous and powerful evidences that is clear to the unbiased mind. And I say unbiased as if that's actually possible to achieve in the real world. I have a biased mind as well. 
I'm biased towards Scripture. I'll be upfront about that. I'm biased toward the existence of God. <clears throat> there are other people that are biased the opposite way. We all have biases. Every one of us. We need to recognize it. Try to work around it when we can. I ask this question, do you want to be right or do you want the truth? There are a lot of people that simply wish to be right. They've made up their minds and, bless God, that's the way it is. And it doesn't matter what you show them, what you tell them. It doesn't matter. We all know people like that. God wants us to have truth. I'll be wrong all day long if I discover truth. James Oliver Buswell, Buswell, in his book Systematic Theology of the Christian Religion, says this, There is no argument known to us which, as an argument, leads to more than a probable, highly probable, conclusion. For example, most of us believe that the sun will rise tomorrow morning, but if we were to analyze the evidences, the arguments that lead to such a conclusion, we should be forced to admit that the arguments, good as they are, are characterized by probability. The theistic arguments are no exception to the rule that all inductive arguments about what exists are probability arguments. This is as far as the arguments, qua arguments, claim to go. Okay, to say it another way, when you all came into the building this morning, at some point in time you decided to sit down on these pews. I don't think any of you tested it first. I don't think any of you put something on that weighs as much as you to see if it was going to support your weight. You just sat down as if it, it's just going to hold me. Why is that? Ultimately, yeah, that was an expression of faith. Now, you have re good reasons to have faith in those pews. They've supported you all of this time. I have no reason to doubt it's going to support me the next time I sit down. But you can't prove that 100%. It could be that the next time I sit down, there's some structural flaw or something happened. Someone came in last night and sawed halfway through it, and it busts right through. It could happen, but the chances are very low that that's going to happen. So that's what we're talking about here, inductive versus deductive. So, arguments for the existence of God. We are not going to make it. Okay, we'll go through this one. Arguments from reason. Okay, cause and effect. If we look at matter in motion, we look at the universe, how it's created, how it operates, there are, uh, there are three possible explanations for it. One, everything out there has existed eternally. It's always been there. The second possibility is uh, they emerged from nothing, which is what the secular humanist will teach you. The third possibility is that they were caused. The first explanation, they exist eternally. We have good reason to believe that's not the case because of something called the second law of thermodynamics. We see things in the universe winding down. We see it losing energy. We see entropy increasing. We see stars dying. By the way, you read about these uh, stellar nurseries. No one has seen a star actually being formed. No one. It's not happened. Oh, yeah. Yeah, they, they see stars in various stages of, of being formed, but they're never going to be formed. Why? Because that's not how they were made. God made them. And he made the stars also. And he named every one of them. 
all 17 quadrillion of them. We see the universe expanding outward from a central location, indicating that at some point in time, it had a beginning. And that is where they came up with the Big Bang. If it's expanding outward, at some point in time, it must have been together. Okay, second possibility, they emerged from nothing. It's a physical impossibility, unless you wish to appeal to miracles. And since we're scientists, and we have evolved beyond the need to appeal to a god... We're just going to throw that one out, right? But that is exactly what they teach. Everything came from a point singularity. And if you get into the physics of black holes, which is what this is, you would understand that the Big Bang could never have happened. But in any case, they believe this zero-point singularity, zero-dimensional object, is that's where everything came from. So literally, everything came from nothing. It's a miracle with a scientific spin on it. The third possibility is they were caused. Everything out there was caused. This is the most logical conclusion. If you're familiar with something called Occam's Razor, It's the idea that the most concise reason, the simplest reason, is probably the best one. Does it seem likely that rational beings can emerge from an irrational process? Again, every time I threw a round down range, no life sprang from it, no amino acids, uh, no rock formations, no dirt sculptures, nothing. Just... Destruction. Okay, man's innate knowledge of God is another reason. Mankind seems to possess a universal belief in a supreme being of some kind. One guy is quoted as saying, man is incurably religious. I think that's true. One has to actively push the idea of God out of their heads if that's the goal they're after. But the Bible teaches us that everybody is aware of the existence of God. They deny it. They are willfully ignorant of the fact. In other words, ignorant on purpose. They push it out of their minds. They create these intellectual constructs against the knowledge of God, trying to explain things so that we don't need a God. Why? Because that's what the evidence states? Not at all. The evidence is almost always to the contrary. The reason is sin. That's why they don't want there to be a God. They don't want to, they don't want to submit to God. They don't want to do what God says. And okay, fair enough. But don't tell me you got all of these scientific reasons. Because you don't. You're just trying to make excuses to live the way you want. Okay, I can accept that. I disagree with it, but I can accept that reason. I know there's a God, but I don't want to, I don't want anything to do with him. I hate hearing that, but I can accept that answer. Don't give me all this other junk because it's just not true. It's not true. We're going to stop here. We'll finish this next week, and then we'll move on. Amen. Let's all stand.